Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and in today's episode, we have another exclusive interview. We have really enjoyed meeting new individuals and bringing them on as our guests to share their story. Today's guest you might be a little bit familiar with. He is most known for his role as Jody Arias' defense attorney, but Kirk Nermy is so much cooler than that. He's an author and he's got so much going on. He's a cancer survivor and I can't wait to share his story with you guys. But before we dive in, I wanted to tell you a little bit about my friend's new business. My friend Christy and her husband created a business called Change 22. Now, what some of you don't know is that both Kinsey and I are military spouses and something that is heavily discussed with the service members is suicide. Veteran suicide is a terrible epidemic that is happening across the country. On average, 22 veterans take their lives a day. That is 22 too many. Their business is called Change 22, and their mission is to bring awareness to that average of 22 veterans a day. A portion of each sale is donated to veteran outreach programs aimed at eliminating veteran suicide. On their website, veterans can find helpful links to veteran programs or chat and forums with other veterans who may be experiencing similar circumstances. They will be conducting charitable events to raise awareness on this epidemic. Visit www.change22.com to make a purchase or just to talk to someone. Even if you are not a veteran, you can still hop on there and see what they have to offer. Many people struggle with mental health and the thoughts and ideas of harming themselves, but you are not alone. Reach out to a program, a fellow veteran, or a friend for help. You can even reach out to Kenzie and I as we are always happy to help in any kind of way or even listen if you need an ear. Again, that website is www.change22.com and they also sell their products on Amazon. So be sure to check them out. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in and listen to what Kurt had to say. Well, my name is Kirk Nermy. Most people know me as the lawyer for Jody Arias, but uh, I was the day on January 2nd, 2013, when I gave opening statement, that was not the beginning of my legal career. Um, I guess you could say that the beginning of my legal career or my desire to practice law uh, began in grade school. I was at a grade school library. I stumbled across a little picture book uh, called She Wants to Be a Lawyer, and it was this book full of pictures and images like most kids books are a few words that describe the daily life of a lawyer and uh, it was all these happy people and doing these happy things and so it was complete um, fiction if you will but it spoke and that's my pleasant way of putting it right Um, it it was complete fiction but it spoke to the heart of this young boy and I decided that I wanted to become a lawyer at that point in time 
of course, you know, you guys might be a little too young for this, but those of us older folks might remember Doogie Hauser, right? The little doctor. Well, unfortunately, they didn't make a, a program for that for lawyers. So uh, I obviously had to wait till I graduated high school and went to college and did all those wonderful things. When I graduated, when I was uh, graduating high school and nearing the approach of the time, um, and I tell this story a, a bit in my one-man show, but I was basically told that I did not have the grades or the uh, test scores to be admitted to a good four-year school, which meant that uh, I wasn't going to get into law school de facto. So, and, you know, the, the advice I was getting from those people were, was well-meaning, ultimately, um, but it was ultimately wrong. Um, I kind of fell into this idea that some, for some reason, their suggestions that I become a cop uh, would was somehow something more attainable with a, a degree and everything. And and being a teenager, I graduated a year early at 17, so I wasn't the most mature uh, teenager. That sounded pretty good because that meant less school and and maybe a police department would pay for my law school down the road. Um, ultimately, though, that led me stumbling in and out of school. Ultimately, uh, getting my degree. Uh, and applying to law school in the late 80s and at a time when law school applications were at their peak. And unfortunately, um, I didn't get in. And I made a crucial decision in my life. And I talk about this in my book, Defend Your Greatness, which I think is kind of a, an ancillary part of the story, if you will. But uh, I, I made the decision to quit my job at the grocery store, which was a good paying job. It was a union benefit, things of that nature, to uh, pursue a master's degree to make myself a more attractive candidate. Um, I met my wife on that campus. So it was a, it was a welcome uh, diversion, if you will, from going straight to law school. Uh, I ended up earning a second bachelor's degree and earning my master's degree at another school. And after I earned my master's degree in criminal justice, I then started uh, practicing law. I had a friend uh, who had some connections in Arizona in 2000 when I graduated law school at the University of Wyoming. The uh, job market here was booming because Phoenix was starting to boom, right? So um, I was actually, it was one of the few opportunities I had to be hired uh, as a law clerk without a degree, my, or excuse me, a law license. I had the degree, I hadn't passed the bar yet. And my wife got a job down here right away as a teacher. So it was an easy fit. We both had jobs. And in 2001, I was sworn in as a uh, lawyer and I began my job as a public defender. And, you know, I had my briefcase and my tie. I'm wearing a tie today, which is odd, odd for me of late. But um, I so I went off and I was uh, a practicing lawyer. I did that for several years and started thinking about getting into private practice. Uh, because the caseload was overwhelming and that sort of thing. And um, an opportunity in, I would say, 2007-ish uh, came up for me to work as a death penalty attorney. We had a county attorney here in Arizona at the time who was uh, hell-bent on charging a lot of death penalty cases, and they were expanding the unit. And I had the experience, and I had a moral uh Oblig or moral stance against the death penalty and a political stance against the death penalty. So um, I decided I would give that a whirl. And in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, I started as a capital defense attorney in the public defender's office. I tried uh, two death penalty cases as a second chair 
Um, I remember, and I won't go into the story a lot because I know people want to get to the areas business, but I remember having one client sentenced to death and feeling the, the pain in that courtroom, not relief in any sort of way, but the pain in that courtroom that that verdict caused, not only to jurors, but I think to everyone involved. I mean, jurors were in tears. Many people were in tears. And I made a promise to myself that uh, no other client of mine would ever meet that fate as long as I was doing that work. The second trial, I was able to keep that uh, promise to myself. But after that second trial, I realized that um, doing a trial every year that lasted about three or four months and really carved a big section out of my life. I mean, I went to a great trip to Cancun while I was in the middle of a death penalty trial, right? So it was really never truly a vacation. So I decided I wanted to leave that um, sort of lifestyle and, and behind and go into private practice and take on simpler cases. At that point in time, when I was making that decision was early 2010, Miss Arias had been assigned to me about four months prior. Um, I made a request with the judge to get off the case, leave the case behind. It was very traditional for such a thing to happen. Um, and in this case, as we know, uh, my efforts to leave Miss Arias and the public defender's office behind only worked out part of the way. I was able to leave the public defender's office, but was unable to leave uh, Miss Arias as, much, as badly as I wanted to. And on January 2nd, 2013, that's why you saw me stand up in that courtroom and, and announce as a lawyer for Miss Arias. Backing up a little bit, I am curious about that death sentence that the client that you mentioned received and how that affected you. Well, like I say, it affected me. It was, it was a powerful moment. You know, I mean, my client, our client was certainly the kind of guy that had the the, the resume, the criminal resume that made him worthy of the death penalty. And, and in this particular incident, he had killed two people. But it was still, like I said, it was so powerful to see just the pain. You know, I remember his sisters um, crying out in pain. His sisters were his only surviving family. And I saw the jurors well up in tears. And, and it really uh, entrenched me in the idea that, that this was not what should happen in, in a courtroom. And even like I say, even the victim's family wasn't boisterous. It was just nothing but pain in that courtroom. And it made me more entranced in my view that the death penalty is, a, is an outdated uh, form of punishment. Obviously, everybody who is in love with true crime knows exactly who Jody Arias is. So let's get into talking about that a little bit. And I'm curious as to if you had a hard time representing Jody Arias. That question sounds so simple, but there's a lot of complexities yeah. to it, right? Because, um, you know, a lot of people always wonder, how do you defend those people accused of this crime? And how can you defend someone who's done such a heinous act, et cetera, et cetera? Um, first of all, you know, I wasn't there by choice, okay? I was there by court order. Um, but at the same time, so I felt like I, I still had an obligation to my client and obviously the promise to myself about, you know, not having the death penalty imposed upon any of my clients, as well as, you know, an obligation to provide her with a fair trial and a, and a fair uh, death penalty sentence. So, um, but, you know, that in and of itself, if this trial happen in a vacuum. Yeah, there's always difficulties with every trial. Had it happened with nobody watching, it would have been 
a, a much different matter. Yeah, it would have been problematic, but it wouldn't have been near as problematic as it was when it became a worldwide sensation and, and we were threatened and we were doing the various things that we had to do to get in and out of court and all that stuff. Um, and that kind of slander and facing those kind of threats, that certainly made the job um, all the more difficult, especially at a time when you're going, I don't want this job anyway. So, but you know, this is the American justice system and people don't understand um, what it takes and what the lawyer's obligations are. You mentioned getting threats and having to go through various different procedures just to get into court on days. Can you go into a little bit more detail and tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it started out, you know, I I documented my book that first day I pulled up and parked in my traditional spot thinking, okay, not that big a deal. I'd seen stuff on the news. I'd seen the reporters on the news standing on the street corner outside the courthouse. And this was like at 5, 530 in the morning. So I knew that obviously that something was going to be a a big deal because they were out there five hours before trial was even going to start, jury selection, whatever it was. And I remember pulling up, though, and seeing all these portable uh, studios. It kind of looked like RVs with big satellite dishes on them, right? The, you know, the size of a small car up there booming, and it was to boom the signal for headline news. Then I started getting a sense of what a big deal it was, and the reporters were still there and what have you, right? And then it got more so when I got to the courthouse that first day, it was relatively normal, but there were still a bunch of people packed in there, and we weren't getting threats or anything of that nature. But as time went on, as the case went on, as the evidence was presented, as the you know, evidence was replayed as shows on HLN started stirring people's emotions. We eventually got to the point where, yeah, we were receiving death threats, where people were stalking. Uh, I didn't have social media at the time, but my co-counsel and, and my mitigation specialist, they were stalking, finding out where their kids went to school, things of that nature to threaten them. I mean, the uh, Miss Wilmot, my co-counsel, had threats on her phone from some guy from Pennsylvania. I mean, we had authorities involved. It was all kinds of stuff, right? I remember getting white powder in the mail, right, opening up, you know, and so because people were so emotionally wound up to it and we got to the point where the media circus and, and people were waiting in line for tickets. We had to go in a different way. We had to have arm escorts. We had to go through some of the back halls. I don't want to give all the secrets away, but that was all, that was the kind of thing that we had to do just to get into court to do our job. So that's what I say. Was it difficult? It was difficult on just so many levels. What do you think caused her trial to blow up so big and get all of the attention that she got? Do you think it's because she's this beautiful woman who is seemingly normal? or And what do you think caused her to blow up and do what she did? Well, you ask a couple of questions there. You asked for the sensation and, and what caused her to, to blow up like that. So um, let me take the let me take the first one because I can't I don't know that I can really answer the second one without violating privilege to the first question. I'd say you tell me because I was in the storm. You tell me as as true crime fans. I mean, I assume that you guys had one eyeball on the trial. Right. What fascinated you? What fascinated your viewers, your listeners, I know you probably weren't doing a podcast at the time, but what fascinated you too about the trial? For me, I think a lot of the times I get really wrapped up in a case because the people are seemingly normal or with Jody Arias, we have this 
woman who a lot of people are finding attractive. She seems like she's got her life together. And then all of a sudden she commits like this horrible act. And I think that goes for a lot of true crime fans is it's just the element of this person seemed normal and all of a sudden they have this demon within them that they unleash on somebody else and takes their life. And I think that's just ultimately kind of what draws me in as a true crime fan. It's interesting because, you know, we had, uh, you know, the sex and the and and the naked pictures and all that stuff has always been something that factored in. And I think the fact that she's a woman, but interestingly enough, a couple months prior to Miss Arias's trial, uh, there was a trial of another woman who was accused of killing her husband. And I mean, they were having threesomes and, and she was a stripper. There was all kinds of things, the salient details of Miss Arias's case. And that case went on without, without a blip of the radar, right? And so those kind of things happen why it's it's too hard to say i mean some of that fascination might be the norm normalcy of of miss Arius, the fact that she blended into society whatever whatever assessment you want to put on her looks i don't necessarily agree with you and as regarding her attractiveness but um maybe that's because i know her as a killer i don't know but yeah i mean i think there is that 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 kind of link like we talked about on on uh robin's podcast this idea that there's quote unquote, attractive, or at least normal people, right? When people think of a killer, they, somebody like Charlie Manson comes to mind, right? Tattooed face and creepy and everything else. Uh, Even though ironically, I think he never killed anybody if I, if I understand the story correctly, but um, they think of a person like that. And they don't think of someone like Ted Bundy or Casey Anthony or Jody Arias, who was for all intents and purposes, d- didn't, you know, have a criminal history. They blended into society before they before they committed their crimes, obviously. But, you know, they blended into society for such a long time without a criminal history. I think Jody was, you know, 20, late 20s, 28, I think, when this occurred and had no criminal history. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that can become a source of fascination. I forget how old Casey Anthony was, but she was probably in her mid-20s as well with little criminal history, at least not significant criminal history. So I think there's some level of fascination with that. But, you know, uh, when when the media picks it up and there's there's a, there's a crowd mentality, that, that just drives more of it as well. I also think that maybe part of it is the way that she acted in the interrogation room after she was first initially arrested. She was doing headstands and singing Oh Holy Night and was just kind of acting bizarre. But you know, a lot of those that you wouldn't see that you might, there might be behavior like that in many cases. You just don't see it, right? A lot of people do some weird stuff in that room, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their case is going to be, I think we can always paint the past with the moments of the future and, and, or, or the present rather, and, and look at things differently. So it's always tainted by, by that sort of thing. So we had many questions submitted by our listeners. And one of them that came in was, have you ever been conflicted because you knew your client was guilty, but it was still your job to help them get the least amount of sentencing as possible? No, because because you're never, as a criminal defense attorney, you're never defending the action or the crime. You're defending the Constitution, and you're defending the parameters of the Constitution. And so there's no moral quandary in that. Those 
that bill of rights means something to me. It should mean something to every citizen. It's what keeps the police from storming at our door and that sort of thing. And I know that answer seems like a technicality to a lot of people, but it's really not to me because mm -hmm. those rights mean a lot. And everybody's, you know, before the state takes any of our freedom, whether it's for a first degree murder or a DUI, they should be forced to prove the case against the person beyond a reasonable doubt. We all know that, right? But even in the guidelines of defense attorneys, and, and I know they've changed the wording a little bit, but our obligation to the court system is to provide the defendant with a zealous defense. And anything short of that can lead to, you know, one, uh, we're not going to have the system that we have, the pristine, well, not pristine, but the 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 system that we have that imposes that on there. If, if defense attorneys are just there as paper dragons, you know, we don't have the system we have. Maybe that's the way I should put it. But if we're providing that zealous representation for Miss Arias or or you guys, you know, whatever it is, that ha that standard has to be there every single time. And it doesn't matter what the crime is. I think a lot of people forget that that is what you are standing up for when you are a criminal defense attorney. Not yeah, a lot of people believe, you know, I think, uh, and I've written about this and, and, and talked about this in various forms. A lot of people believe that a defense attorney, I even had someone reach out to me to, the other day after watching this uh, documentary I did in defense of saying, geez, I always thought defense attorneys believe their clients right? That they had to believe their clients. And what? it's not true. That's never true. It's certainly not true of court uh, appointed counsel. And that's, that's, it could be the case if in certain situations, but more often than not, it's, it's not the case. It's not even a consideration. It's about protecting, protecting the rights of, of the individual. Are you still practicing law today? I do not. After I wrote, the, well, after I wrote the book in uh, 2015, late 2015, I published the book. I published the book based on the idea that um, I, I was, uh, I had been diagnosed with stage three cancer at that point in time, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And if you remember, those who followed the case closely will remember that in May of 2015, or no, 2013 rather, when Miss Arias was first convicted, she went on and did a uh, interview with a local reporter literally while the jury was deliberating whether she should get life or death, gave this interview and basically said that her defense, that she defended herself and that, you know, Mr. Alexander was a pedophile and all those things was a source of my creation, not hers, right? She put it all on me. And at that point in time, I thought, okay, well, listen, a, a couple of weeks down the road, the jury's going to render a verdict and I'll be able to add some truth, impose some truth upon it. And then, of course, we know that the jury hung on sentencing and I was still Miss Aries's lawyer for another year and a half or so until April of 2015. But by that time, I was like just so sick of it. I was done. I made some statements on the on the courthouse steps and I just walked away thinking I was going to be done with it. And I didn't. I wrote to, for myself for cathartic purposes based on what I'd been through. But I really didn't think I was going to publish it anything else. But then when my mortality became a reality, right, and I was looking at that 30% chance of not surviving this cancer, I really wanted to make sure that I imposed truth upon her lies in a way that would survive me if, if I was going to, my departure when the planet was going to be hastened by cancer. So that's why I published uh, part one 
so that truth could be out there for people to digest should they want to. And are you cancer-free today? I am cancer-free today. I had a checkup in uh, February that I reached that uh, five-year milestone, if you will, because you're technically, you're considered in remission for the first five years. And then when you reach that five-year mark, uh, you're considered cancer-free. So I'm cancer-free. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. So other than being a criminal defense attorney, you are also an author. So tell us about your books. I have published like eight books. Really? Really? I know. It shocks me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding you. I swear somebody, uh, a buddy of mine is is a book writing coach and I do a little of that myself. And he asked me to be on his podcast about writing books. And I thought, well, what the heck do I know about writing books? And I just went, well, yes, I've written eight. So yeah, you can go to kirknermy.com. There's a link to my website. They're all on, on Amazon. Some are on weight loss because between 2013 and 2014, I lost over 75 pounds. A lot of people were asking how I did it. So I wrote a book on that. Then I wrote the Arius books as well as some fiction books and um, Defend Your Greatness, which is a documents kind of my, my battles with infamy and cancer and, and what I took from those, from those battles. Kind of a, a self-help book, if you will. My personal favorite. So I know we just had that amazing opportunity where the three of us were able to be on Robin's podcast, Get Real with Robin, but do you actually have your own podcast? I do not. I co-host with Robin and and I'm on enough that uh, I feel like doing my own isn't isn't, isn't cards for me. I'm going to get back to writing soon. So. And what do you plan on writing next? Oh, you got to wait till it comes out. I I don't disclose anything about my wife doesn't even see them until she gets to uh, she she gets she gets to see them early because she gets to proofread them. She reads she reads the manuscript when I'm done writing. So I just keep it to myself because, you know, I feel like a book is something it's a piece of art and it's not really done until it's done. And to some extent, I don't always know what it's going to be until Mm -hmm. it's done. Is there anything cool that you are working on right now other than your book? I am part of the cast of a show called Radical Body Transformation. And it's kind of like Biggest Loser, only it's more like from um, a little flabby to a lot fit. But so, yeah, we're, we're about two months in the process. I've lost about... Uh, close to 20 pounds since working with her and uh, putting so on cool. muscle, getting stronger. And so what's going to happen is uh, on social media, all my social media accounts are Nermi Unchained uh, on uh, Twitter and Instagram and myself in person uh, on Facebook, but I'm going to be documenting the journey. I'm going to be going on every week or so and, and getting on the scale and kind of uh, letting everyone come with me on this journey of what I'm up to. And then uh, when we get closer to the year mark, which will be, I guess, January or February, we'll have the, the, the filming and then there'll be, will be the big reveal part of the uh, Amazon, Amazon prime show, radical body transformation. I guess I should mention one more thing too, although it's kind of been in the back of my mind because of, of COVID, I haven't been able to perform, but I have a one man show called overcoming Jody Arias which is a 90 minute thereabouts uh, show. And I talk about 
um, overcoming Jody Harris. I talk a little bit about the trial. I usually do it uh, in comedy clubs. I did it in October to comedy club. And I just talk a little bit about my story and why I was there on January 2nd, 2013. And, and we talk a little bit about the trial and I wear different hats and wigs and all sorts of things. So um, it's a lot of fun. Everybody's enjoyed it, that's seen it. But, you know, with COVID and half capacity, it just hasn't worked out yet. But, uh, you know, that's that's going to be out there. Hopefully when when we get past this, I'll start booking more more dates in that regard as well so i have another question in regard to jody arias after everything was done and you were completely done with her how did you feel were you just completely drained uh tell us a little bit about that sure i was i was pretty drained i mean obviously that was five and a half years with jody arias right and from january 2nd 2013 to april 14th or 15th, whatever day she was sentenced, might've been a day or two earlier, whatever day she was sentenced in the public spotlight. So think about that's two and a half years in the public spotlight and, and being threatened and, you know, a big guy, shaved head, all that stuff. Right. So it was really um, difficult for me, you know, just, just in life. Right. I was just like burnt out. I, I felt like I began to wonder if I wanted to practice law anymore just because I was so burned out and it was such an experience, right? And so I chalked all that up to, you know, burnout and decided I'm going to take a vacation because I really like, how was I going to give up my career and all this stuff, right? And so my wife and I took a couple months because you could imagine it was hard on her as well, you know, kind of, she actually quit her job as a teacher because she was on a website, uh, you know, so somebody could figure out where she worked. And so that put her safety at jeopardy as well. Um, so she, uh, she and I had the time on our hands and we did some of those bucket list trips we always wanted to do. And um, I was searching that whole summer for um, something else that I wanted to pursue. And unfortunately, that thing never came. And I started to think about going back into the practice of law and going back to my office and doing all that stuff. And that's when I noticed the lymph node under my armpit. And that was the sign that I had this stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So um, that set me on, obviously, a different course away from the practice of law. So there was a lot going on. But yeah, it was tough. It was tough, no doubt about it. I absolutely cannot imagine having to live through all of that stress and everything. So, so bless you for what you have done and what you did. I don't know how you do it and how you stay sane. Well, look, some, someone had to do it, unfortunately. Right. And, you know, there's uh, uh, John Ronson. I don't know if you he's a podcaster, just ironically does stuff in the mostly in the adult world, but it's kind of interesting, but he talks about the butterfly effect. And we think about the butterfly effect of the Arias case, you know, once she committed that killing and decided, I guess we can call them murder nowadays because she's been convicted as such. Um, once she committed that act and started going on TV, remember, you know, and this is maybe a partial answer. She was being interviewed before she was even extradited to Arizona. She was being interviewed by, um, I think it was CBS. And then when she came to Arizona in 2008, before she was my client, um, she was also interviewed again uh, by CBS. I think it was uh, Maureen Mao. I think it was 48 hours or something. But anyway, be that as it may, whatever show it was, the the butterfly effect of that situation was 
was what we have here, right? Mr. Alexander's killed, and then so many people's lives are affected outside of that. Mr. Martinez, myself, uh, mitigation specialists, the court, the court staff, the jurors, everybody's life was negatively impacted by the choices Miss Arias made on June 4th. I, and I believe me, Mr. Alexander and his family most prominently, I don't get me wrong, I'm not saying uh, anything to the contrary, but when we think about a killing like this, you think about the kind of effect it has on so many people, um, you know, and uh, what her actions, you know, the only, the one of the truest things she ever said, I think is that her actions cause so much pain. And that's totally true. Now, do I think she said that because she realized it or because she wanted to save face? I'll leave, I'll leave that up to, to, to you, to the, the viewer to, or listener to discern. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely an action that, that just has ripple effects and caused a lot of pain um, and a lot of lives to change because of the actions she made, choices she made. Obviously, there is so much more to you than just being Jody Arias' defense attorney. And she's like that black cloud that follows you around. Do you think that you will ever be able to escape the title of Jody Arias' defense attorney? Or do you think you will forever live with that? You know, I mentioned uh, the earlier the documentary In Defense Of. And um, if you watch that, you, you, I think you both would like it. And I think your audience would like it as well, because it's, um, it's stories of four attorneys in infamous cases who were, you know, tasked with defending the person. And one of them was um, John Henry Brown, who defended Ted Bundy at, in, originally in Washington, not in Florida, all around. And then uh, we had Dan Coughlin, who represented one of the uh, gentlemen at Waco when uh, Janet Reno ordered that the, the compound at Waco be, um, be raided. And then um, Chris and uh, Johnson, who represented um, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. And we all talked about, you know, our stories and what it was like. And, you know, Chris was before the social media era and he would get, he would get death threats and he had to leave his family and leave his state to, to do this case and, and what have you. Right. Cause he was, it was a federal case. So, yeah. And, but it's interesting. And I, I pre use that as a preface to my answer. I think that John Henry Brown and he and I have since become friends with a fascinating dinner you guys should have taped that dinner but uh that dinner conversation that would have been made for good podcast but um you know here here he is and i i think about him be, every time i hear ted bunny's name because well, i was on doc i had the opportunity to be on dr oz a couple of years ago and they were talking about ted bunny in a segment before me right and i realized no it just doesn't go away i mean i say in my books if i have an obituary if there's a blurb on the news about me, it's going to be Jody Arias's former lawyer passed. It's not going to be Kirk Nermy passed. And that's always going to be the reality. And I spent a couple of years trying to run away from that reality and realized I couldn't run fast enough. So I just had to accept that reality. It is what it is. It'll always be something. It'll always be something that people are interested in, I guess. What an incredible opportunity it was for both Kinsey and I to sit down and talk to Kirk Nermy. Let me tell you guys, he is one of the nicest people ever. What I'm not including in the rest of this episode was a nice long conversation that I myself had with Kirk about the possibilities of me going to law school. 
actually what I should say is my doubts of my abilities to be able to complete law school. Kirk was so incredibly motivating and inspiring and pretty much told me that I am limiting myself and he gave me this quote that really resonated with me. He said, your dreams will never be extinguished by your excuses. And that is so true. I am absolutely blessed and feel so honored to be able to talk to Kirk. And I highly suggest you guys go to kirknermy.com and check out his books. I cannot wait to read his books about Jody Arias. Once again, thank you so much to Kirk for sitting down with Kenzie and I. We really appreciate this opportunity. Guys, that is all that I have for today. Until next time, be aware and take care. Bye.